The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Jerome Powell, as you'd expect, doubling down on the messaging that the Fed will accelerate the pace of hikes if necessary. As employment data once again fuels expectations of rates staying higher for longer. But the Fed chair insists this month's decision is still open. The data we've seen so far uh, this year suggests that the ultimate level of rates will need to be higher. But we, we still have some more data to come in between now and the meeting. Weaker consumer demand sees Chinese inflation slowing to its lowest rate in a year in February, whilst factory deflation continues for the fifth straight month. Japan's parliament approved, approved Kazuo Ueda as the Bank of Japan's new governor. As the central bank watches eye a path out of decades of ultra-loose monetary policy. The next domino falls as crypto lender Silvergate announces it is closing down and returning deposits, with turmoil in the sector taking its toll. JP Morgan sues former executive Jez Staley, claiming he didn't disclose ties to convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein and should be liable for any damages if the bank is found guilty of facilitating his crimes. Morning, everybody. Welcome to the programme this morning. Let's get into uh, day two then of the testimony. Fed Chair Jerome Powell pulled back a little on his hawkish tone in his second day of testimony to Congress, telling lawmakers no decision has been made on how much the central bank will hike rates this month. In his testimony, Powell highlighted one of the key indicators on the Fed's radar. Some part of the high inflation that we're experiencing is very likely related to an extremely tight labor market. Wages affect prices and prices affect wages, so I do think that's part of it. Meanwhile, one of those indicators landed as Powell sat down. January's jolts job openings came in at 10.8 million. That is higher than estimates and almost double the amount of available workers, even though it was down 410,000 on the month, as employers made the most new hires in more than half a year. February's ADP figure also came in hot, beating estimates by more than 10% to show 242,000 new hires. February's non-farm payrolls figure will be top of mind tomorrow as investors look to see whether the tightness continues. Lending and asset management giants have made their calls on what the spate of hot data means for the Fed, with BlackRock, Goldman and Schroders all raising their peak rate forecasts. Uh, we've got some flashes coming in from Credit Suisse here, and I think these are significant, so let's get to them very quickly before Steve takes you through the wall. Credit Suisse announces technical delay in the publication of the 2022 annual report. Credit Suisse uh, delay follows a late call from the SEC on March the 8th. So the group says uh, we confirm the uh, 2022 financial results as previously released on February the 9th, uh, 2023, are not impacted by the above. 
Management believes it is prudent to briefly delay the publication of its accounts in order to understand more thoroughly comments received following a late call on the evening of March the 8th from the US uh, SEC in relation to certain open SEC comments about the technical assessment of previously disclosed revisions to consolidated cash flow statements in years ended December 31st, 2020 and 2019. The um, detail on this is um, not great. Let's face it, we're getting some information here that is pointing us in the direction of where we need to look to see what the challenge is from the SEC at this stage. But let's be quite frank about this. Um, We've had a slew of difficult announcements around Credit Suisse since the start of the year here, Uh, not least the chairman being challenged on comments made around the outflows, Uh, not least the fact that David Hero, long-term holder of Credit Suisse, has sold out of the stock. And now this will just add to the confusion, I think, about how strong the rebound is in terms of the, the, the bank's desire to resolve its underlying challenges and problems through this restructuring program that is ongoing. The hits just keep on coming, right? There is no way to just end this series of negative news. I mean, we just get to a point where we feel like we're done. We have a restructure of the bank. We've got the, the first Boston business. We've had a, an update on direction. And here we have more negative news flow. And it's not around what we thought might be an issue, which was the outflows inflows, you know, whether they'd been stemmed at some point late last year. This dates back again to legacy issues as we talk about 2019-2020. So investigators, uh, regulators are raking back over those numbers. So it feels like there are small skeletons in the closet. We still haven't had the kitchen speaking. I think we just need to hold fire for a moment because until we get some clarity on exactly whether the SEC is going to take any specific action around these statements, then it's difficult for us to to comment as to how negative this ultimately will be. They're calling it a technical delay for the time being while there is some clarification. But of course, it's not a great look, is it? Look, I just look at this from a shareholder point of view and from an employee point of view as well, you know, uh, and both, as I've said before, must be utterly demoralized beyond belief. And I feel very sorry for any friends I've still got at Credit Suisse, because I've known a lot of people who've worked there over the years as well. Mm. Some who are out, some are still there as well. And the fact is, it must be just continually demoralizing going in, knowing they've got to cut costs, knowing they're going to cut operations, knowing that they haven't got the capital necessarily available to grow their division they want to be in as well. Mm. And then from a shareholder point of view, well, if Saudi thought they were value at around about four Swissy, which is where roughly we believe they got in, and the Qataris think they're real good value as well, then you're going to get another great opportunity to get involved in this stock at a lower level as well, because they're now trading 268, give or take the change, which is just above the all-time low of 250 as well. This is a company that has had one of the most catastrophic declines in value, dare I say it, since Lehman's. I mean, they've just gone down and then they've gone down and gone down again as well. And for everyone out there who says they are cheap, they've got great operations in this, that and the other, yeah, they're 0.25 price to book for a very good reason and that is because they cannot appear at the moment. And I agree with exactly what both of you said, that it could be bad, but we just don't know.
Yeah. We do not know, and, and I am not going to say this is bad news potentially, but let's face it, it's not great if you're an investor saying yet again there's a regulator having some issues with this company. I mean, you don't have to dig far to, to see how this story is um, slowly playing out. Um, the, the bank, it, it believes, and the management team, it believes, are putting in place the foundations for a recovery and one of the recent announcements yeah, from sure. Credit Suisse that they've now got a license I think to start a fully fledged um, wealth management business in China which they would see as a win because it's a market that they've long been agitating in to have a more uh, robust um, role as an independent business and this green light will be seen as a positive for them and also gives them another way to access important clients that they think exist in China for their wealth this, um, management I services but at the same time you've got the um, substantial losses um, that are uh, have, have ultimately pulled together a, uh, a class action lawsuit and that continues to roll forward as well in the US. Um, We've got lots more to say. I know we've got two guests waiting in this block as well, so let's let's move on as well. Um, thank you for that. And have you got your passport on you? Yeah. You have? Oh, no. Have you genuinely got your passport? I thought we had some guests. Are we rolling on? No, I was just asking you a quick question, Good. that's all, but you made it Good. a bit longer. Um, right, let's move on, US markets, because uh, I just wondered whether that early Zurich flight was available. Um, right, OK, let's have a look at the uh, markets here. Uh, actually, very robust performance yesterday, given the fact that uh, there was a doubling down from... Um, Jay Powell and the fact that the data by and large, you can you can look to your blue in the teeth at the jolts down 400,000 jobs available you've still got let me get this right ladies and gentlemen 10.8 million jobs available apparently for 5.7 million unemployed that is a huge ratio way above pre-covid as well uh, markets I thought were quite robust given the um, the doubling down of that and the fact in the treasuries as well and we'll take a look at the treasuries now the short end continues to go up in terms of yield down in terms of underlying five 0.056 now and the two 10-year spread is matching levels we haven't seen since the 18th of September 1981 yeah so huge inversion going on there quick look at the dollar crosses as well uh, 118.56 sterling dollar and 105.52 euro dollar as well Asian indices look like this um, firm unspectacular on some of these markets uh, Nikkei is the best of the bunch up six tenths of one percent and the opening calls for European markets I think we're called lower yes we are 7900 for the FTSE 100 let's get to Neil Wilson co-chief executive officer of EJF Capital uh, Neil very good to see you sir I actually think the US markets are taking it really well I know we're down what are we down now 1.8 percent for the week for the Dow 1.3 percent for the S&P but given the messaging plus the data I think the markets are looking incredibly robust, but are they too robust and should they be lower, sir? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on uh, today. Um, no, I, I think that uh, what happened yesterday was really just um, a leveling off from what, what the reaction was, which was pretty violent on Tuesday from Powell's initial statements, uh, which made it very clear that the process of getting inflation down to 2%, uh, to quote uh, Chair Powell, was it's going to be bumpy and it's going to take a long time. So um, I, I think what you're going to you're going to see is the market is basically yesterday just saying, look, we really need to wait for these two sets of data. One is going to be, of course, the non-farm payrolls. Um, I would expect it to come in pretty hot. The ADP that came out yesterday was, you know, 242,000. That was, you know, 20 percent higher than what the projection was. Um, and then it's going to wait for CPI as well next week. So those are going to be very binary. And I would expect some 
you know, bumpy, you know, kind of uh, volatile days in the market. Um, and and I would expect that, you know, we're working towards 50 basis points in terms of a March 22, um, you know, FOMC meeting. Does the market go down from here? Because there are a lot of people out there saying if we have a recession coming and that's what the Fed's trying to auger here, then we haven't even started the downtick in equities. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm in that camp. I mean, the, the, you had mentioned earlier at the outset the the spread, you know, kind of the uh, inverted yield curve between the two and ten year Treasury notes. Um, it's it's not only notable that the two year went above five percent, uh, but the spread, um, the thirty year went down. So the the spread uh, or the ten year, I'm sorry, went down. So the spread is is greater than it's been for you know since since the '80s, and that's the most violent increase in rates we've had since. Um, you know, since this past year. So um, I would expect there to be a, a downtick in the market. Um, there are some things that are buttressing it, however. The consumer is still pretty strong. There was a lot of stimulus dollars put out, uh, cost of living adjustments um, for, for people on pensions in America. You know, there's still, the consumer is still showing some strength. The only cracking we're really seeing in the consumer is really at the weekend, you know, kind of the subprime type uh, borrowers. Um, but I would note that credit card balances are higher than they were pre-COVID. So, so there is cracking. I would expect the market to have a leg down. And I think you're going to see some violent days with these two data points. As we take a look at the market and discuss which part of the market we could see the leg down and of note is the resilience we've seen in technology. I mean, the Nasdaq has outperformed the Dow over the course of this week. Why is that when typically for the last number of quarters, every time it looked like a higher interest rate environment, it was a tech sell off that we witnessed? Why is that not happening to the same extent this time? Well, I think I think the the uh, the Nasdaq kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, coming back this year is really because uh, of the oversell off last year. Um, and, and I think you're now just seeing kind of a normalization. I don't I don't expect there to be much movement from here. But if you look at um, if you look at the S&P 500, you know, you're at 18 times uh, earnings. Um, and if you take out the FANG stocks, the top, you know, six stocks, tech stocks, um, it's more like you know 15 times. So um, you know that the market is um, you know proving resilient. But on the tech side, I think you, you've had your rebound, and that's really what I would call it. It's really it's really a rebound when you have high, high rates like this for longer. Uh, tech will not uh, particularly perform uh, quite well. Um, that that would be kind of my assessment. Can I ask you about the safety? A lot of investors just reaching for cash at this point or shorter dated treasuries. Do, what do you make of the safety trade? Is it rational at this point? No, I, I think I think it's very sound. I mean, and that's the one stress we are seeing, you know, on on banks is that the the deposit beta, you know, banks can't can't aren't really able to match uh, just going into short treasury trade, the laddered short treasury trade, um, and and going into money markets where you can get you know a higher yield. So that's the the one small strain we're seeing on on banks. Um, but I would note that you know banks' capital levels are at historic highs, and so I, I don't see any. Um, I don't see any real concern in the banking system. So, Neil, um, just give us a sense of how to position for the coming period. Well, I, I think there's two there's two important government programs that really haven't hit their impact. One is the 1.7 trillion infrastructure bill that was passed last year, uh, bipartisan, and then you also have the Inflation Reduction Act. Although it was poorly named, it is a huge. Um, uh, government spend in the sustainable energy space, renewables. So if you're, so if you can look at, you look at materials, look at industrials. I mean, you're going to have a big infrastructure spend, and you're going to have a big spend over the next few years 
uh, in sustainable energy and renewables. So those are the areas if you want to take a long-term view. On a short-term view, you want to look at companies' debt. I think debt's a little bit more interesting here, where companies have to refinance their debt um, at, at these higher rates. There's going to be very idiosyncratic kind of interesting areas to play in that space. Um, give us some sectors that you think look challenged at the moment. I mean, historically, I think when we've worried about failures at a corporate level in the States, in, in recent years, it's been around the energy space where we know a lot of money was borrowed. But um, what about now? Well, I, I think I think you're going to see some um, uh, specialty finance areas where, uh, you know, companies have to, you know, they, they no longer have access uh, to the, you know, to cheap money. Uh, they basically have debt that they have to roll over. Uh, so I would say in the specialty finance area, that's like non-regulated lending. Uh, so that area is going to have, is already under some stress. So those those are kind of the, that's that's kind of an interesting area from a, from a, a, a large return perspective. Pleasure catching up with you. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Neil Wilson, the co-chief executive officer of EJF Capital. And for more on what could be next for the Fed, pro subscribers can read about why some strategists are straying from received wisdom on what an inverted yield curve means for the economy. That's on CNBC.com. President Joe Biden will lay out his budget plans today with tax increases on billionaires, corporations and rich investors expected to fund his aim of reducing the federal deficit by $3 trillion over the coming decade. But his proposals are expected to be all but dead on arrival in a divided Congress, where debate still rages on how to tackle the looming threat of a federal default. Deutsche Post, DHL Group has raised its dividend and extended its share buyback program after putting in a better than expected 15% jump in full year revenue. But the logistics giant says it expects EBIT to dip in the current year. Uh, we're pleased to have back with us Frank Uppel, the uh, CEO of Deutsche Post, DHL Group. Frank, good morning. Good to see you. Just characterize the period for us. How do you see it? Yeah, we, def we definitely have at the moment a challenging situation from an economic point of view. This is not really surprising for anybody. Um, it might be that the first quarter might be the most difficult one. It's unpredictable still, but there are first signs uh, that volumes are coming back or decline is softening somehow. And, and that is encouraging, but of course it's too early to celebrate, but the signs are better than a couple of weeks ago. I think we are more optimistic now than we probably have been six or eight weeks ago. What was notable, I thought, in the earnings announcement was the talk about how the EBIT forecast represents three potential scenarios. And there's a, there's a decent spread in the forecast here. What, what does that say about the visibility you have right now and what's creating that lack of clarity? Yeah, so, you know, it's a little bit a, a challenging situation because at the end of the day, the question is how fast the economy recovers. And that would lead to a V-shaped recovery, as we have seen in the financial market crisis. Um, will it be a longer uh, downturn than it's a U? And if it doesn't recover this year at all, then it's an Elbin. And we give uh, to our investors guidance what that would mean for our numbers. You know, what really will happen, we will see only in due course, 
but you know there are some symptoms which are very similar to the financial market crisis. B two C volumes have not been dropped as much as B two B volume. Very similar what we say, have seen 15 years ago or 14 years ago. So it's it's quite interesting to see that. And if there is still demand from consumers and it's not dropping, you know then there will be also sooner or later B two B volume coming back, and and that needs to be monitored. And what we want to be clear to our investors, we are transparent. We don't have a glass wall, and that's the reason why we gave a free scenarios, even if we don't know which one will come. Frank, your company presentation is interesting today because you are pointing out the immediate trends we're seeing on the back of the macroeconomic environment versus the longer term trends and your comments around the, the B to, to C customer base here that there is some weakness, but that you think long term structurally we are seeing that shift where e-commerce claims more of the retail market. Just talk to us about that underlying strength that you think still remains in the business despite what we're seeing on the economic side. Yeah, so E-commerce and, and B2C volumes will remain strong and will grow continuously. You know, we are still in the conversion from retail to e-commerce for B2C, but also for B2B. You know, the, the convenience of last mile delivery return solution is as overwhelming. Of course, there are short-term impacts, like people could travel more and therefore we spend more money on travel than buying stuff. But the underlying trend is very much intact and we expect midterm that uh, B2C volumes will grow, you know, mid to high single digit uh, percentage points. Frank, there's been a lot of evidence from various quarters that supply chains are resolving some of the issues that they've had over recent years. We even saw it from the New York Fed perspective. What would you say about the state of supply chains at this point? Do you think they're almost 100% fixed? Yes, I think supply chains are very robust. After the lockdowns in China over as well, uh, we see, you know, good development there from there as well. Um, you know, it's good that the rates came down as well. This is against inflation, so that will help to bring down inflation. So I think supply chains, which never stopped actually, very often the reason was not the supply chain, the reason was that there was not enough production of certain products. That was the reason why we had some delay sometimes. Yes, we had queues at harbors. This is all gone. I think supply chains are back to normal, which is a very encouraging sign because, you know, that will help the world to, to get back on course. Frank, very good to see you today. Um, look, why is extending the share buyback program by or two, three billion dollars by the end of uh, 2024? Why is that the best use of your capital? There seems to be enormous amount of opportunities for you to grow the business as well. Uh, and also your shares have had a, a solid old rally anyway off the September lows. They've put on by my mind, about 33% since then as well. Why do you need a buyback, Frank? So first of all, we had a very strong free cash flow. Our cash flow was significantly above the consensus. Uh, and we think it's right to you know, let our shareholders participate. That doesn't hold us back on organic and inorganic movements. Our balance sheet is stronger than ever before. And I think that's the moment where you should you know, involve and, and give back to the shareholders at the same time that you are not uh, going back on your own investments. We always have done that. We always put investments into our own activities first. We will continue to do so. And if then money is left, why not let shareholders participate? One could argue that if it's that sustainable over a longer term, you just increase the divvy. But I won't go there now because I want to ask you another question. What have you left on the table for Tobias Mayer? Because unfortunately for us, uh, but I'm sure the continuity at Deutsche Post DHL will be great. Tobias Mayer taking over from you, of course, and this could well be our last interview of you as CEO. Certainly not our last interview ever, I hope. Um, what have you left on the table for him? What's his biggest challenge? 
You know, I, I think, you know, there are always ongoing challenges. I think the economic environment is definitely a challenge. Uh, and let's see where that goes. You know, there will be new threats. I, I think there is not something. I think if the house is in good order, but there will be all these challenges. You know, it's ne never ever it will be perfect. I think the balance sheet is strong, the cash flow is strong, the profitability is high. And I think he has a good starting point. He has a very strong team, I think. But of course, there will be new challenges. You know, in the last three years, we experienced two challenges nobody expected, COVID and the war in the Ukraine. So, let, you know, I would not say this is the bigger one, it's the other one. I think, you know, he has a company, he will take over the company, it's in good order, but there will definitely be new challenges to come. Frank, lovely to see you today. Thank you very much indeed for your time as ever. And again, we hope to speak to you many more times over the years about uh, what is going to happen in this business and beyond. Frank Arpel, the CEO of Deutsche Post DHL Group. Coming up on the show, China inflation misses forecasts. The CPI marks its slowest rise in a year. More on that after the break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. You're watching Sportbox. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Another blow for Credit Suisse as the troubled Swiss bank delays the release of its annual report after a late night call from the SEC. Jerome Powell doubles down on the messaging that the Fed will accelerate the pace of hikes if necessary as employment data fuels expectations of rates staying higher for longer. But the Fed chair insists this month's decision is still very much open data we've seen so far uh, this year suggests that the ultimate level of rates will need to be higher. But we, we still have some more data to come in between now and the meeting. Weaker consumer demand sees Chinese inflation slow to its lowest rate in a year in February, while factory deflation continues for the fifth straight month. Deutsche Post DHL Group hikes its dividend and extends its share buyback program as full-year revenue jumps more than 15 percent. CEO Frank Kapal says the outlook is still uncertain. The first quarter might be the most difficult one. It's unpredictable still, but there are first signs uh, that volumes are coming back or decline is softening somehow. And, and that is encouraging, but of course it's too early to celebrate. But JP Morgan is suing its former executive and former Barclays CEO Jez Staley, alleging he failed to disclose potentially damaging ties to convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. The bank says it was deceived by Staley, claiming he protected Epstein's relationship with the bank. JP Morgan denies facilitating Epstein's crimes, but says that if it's found liable, Staley should be responsible for any damages. Karen. Markets effectively pressing pause yesterday. Investors again leaning into testimony from Jay Powell 
This time it was perceived as slightly softer than a day earlier, where we'd had initially 50 basis points in terms of rate hikes put back on the table for this month. J-Power signaling to markets that we're still data dependent. A lot of data still crossing from the jobs market, non-farm payrolls on Friday. Leading up to that, we had the jolts report giving us a sense that the uh, labor market is cooling, but perhaps not to uh, the same extent that the Fed will want it to be softening at this point, still tight in some areas of that market. So we saw higher increase, for instance, even though layoffs surged, quits dropped, but the overall wash up was that this labor market is still a challenge for the Fed looking for more cooling. When it comes to the ADP, uh, the private sector adding 242,000 jobs in February, uh, still a decent pace and it came in above economists' forecasts. So that is on the job front. The, the other key for this market is going to be inflation next week, whether we saw some cooling off in prices in the month of February as that crosses next week. This could seal the case for whether it's 25 basis points or 50. Some, some caution coming back in. I was pointing out earlier that you are seeing the uh, selling taking place in the Dow more so than the tech area of the Nasdaq at this point, that market is still managing to push higher by the close up four tenths of a percent. Nvidia, one of the big moving stocks for both the S&P and the Nasdaq to the upside. Asian markets, uh, let's see how they're faring. You can see modestly upbeat still, not huge ranges when it comes to the Australian market and China only just ahead. You're seeing a little bit more strength come across to some of the other markets, particularly on Japanese stocks, six tenths plus on the Tokyo market, Steve. Thank you, Karen. Japan's lower house of parliament has approved government nominee Kazuo Ueda as the next governor of the Bank of Japan, as well as central bank governor Shinichi Ushida and former banking regulator Ryotsu Himino as deputy governors. Ueda will chair his first policy meeting at the end of next month as investors look for whether the BOJ could begin to exit its ultra-loose monetary policy. Japan's economy narrowly avoided a recession in the fourth quarter with a growth of just 0.02% from the third quarter and 0.1% on the year. Well below expectations, private consumption and services spending both grew at a slower level than expected. Uh, consumer prices in China unexpectedly cooled on the month in February and were 1% higher on the year, the slowest rise in 12 months. Factory prices continued their decline for a fifth month as commodity prices eased. Core annual inflation rose by less than in the previous month amid weak domestic demand. Sam joins us now with more on the story. And Sam, it's a little early to tell here, but what bearing do we think these inflation numbers have on the recovery that's taking place in China? Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, it seems like we've seen still some distortion around the Lunar New Year holiday impacting some of these numbers. Uh, certainly the market was expecting the inflation to cool off in February, but not as much as it did. And what it, that is doing now is it's reigniting some of these investor concerns about the pace of the recovery. Now, the consumer prices, as you mentioned, uh, certainly did rise at the slowest pace in around a year. That came off the back of the spring festival. So the demand for things like vegetables and pork, China's favourite meat, which makes up for a big chunk of that basket, uh, that dropped and so did the demand for things like domestic tourism and travel because people had to go back to work. So at the same time, we did see uh, the supply side picking up because of the weather actually improving and warming up too. So uh, what we've seen is some seasonal factors, but still economists are saying uh, that it raises a lot of questions about the strength of the recovery. And that is because 
it's not really consistent with other data. It's a bit conflicting with, for instance, the services sector PMI that we got out last week. So what's going to be very interesting now is to look at the retail sales that we get next week uh, for an indication of really how the consumer is holding up in China because that will strip out some of the distortion around the Lunar New Year holiday because it will be January and February uh, combined. Now, when you look at that core inflation, which strips out that volatile food and energy down to 0.6% now, um, and certainly what that suggests is that we are certainly seeing persistent weakness when it comes to domestic demand um, at a time when China really needs to rely on that side of the equation to mitigate some of those softening exports that we saw, of course, earlier this week. Now, when it comes to the factory gate, we saw that deflation coming in for a fifth month. Analysts are putting that down largely to those falling energy prices uh, and also those commodity costs. There's also been some suggestion that perhaps this is down to uh, a bit of the tail end of the Lunar New Year as well when it comes to some of that distortion with some of the resumption of manufacturing um, a bit slow and also when it comes to the Construction because of the weakness we're seeing continuing in the property sector. Uh, what this also tells us, perhaps, this gap between the CPI and the PPI is that the, the rebound that we have seen in consumption still isn't reaching the upstream sectors. However, in terms of the outlook, uh, there is an expectation that things will pick up because China is learning to live with the virus. Uh, but for now, guys, it should keep the PBOC accommodative and perhaps even be able to use a triple R cut as it, as it has suggested and what the markets have been speculating as well lately. Back to you. Thank you very much for that, Sam. Well, Spotify announced a slew of new updates at its Stream On event, including a significant redesign of its mobile app, as well as the introduction of a new TikTok-style discovery feed. The streaming company also revamped its podcasting division and announced it reached a milestone of 500 million monthly active listeners. Michael Krauser joins us, the EU General Manager at Spotify. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. I want to pick up on that redesign because it feels as though the industry is looking towards TikTok. This is the social media player that a lot of the major players want to emulate and make sure there are no gaps uh, between them and TikTok. But that said, TikTok has found its way into a world of geopolitics. Can I ask you about the implications of that as we have a US Senate trying to push ahead with banning foreign technology like TikTok, TikTok's trying to cross data security issues. What are the implications here for the industry? Yeah, let's talk a bit about our update, actually. <clears throat> it's an evolution of Spotify. So we have really redesigned the whole feed so that you can seamlessly, and that's probably the first app in the world that does it, seamlessly uh, discover different kind of content types from music, podcasts to audiobooks in a totally new way. So for us, it's like since probably the launch of our mobile apps uh, a decade ago, that's probably the biggest evolution of our system. And look, creators, they want to express themselves and they, they feel that there are many ways to express themselves. And one is through moving pictures. So that's why we feel that giving them the ability to showcase their, their true self and what they want to express with their music or with their podcast uh, is definitely something that they were striving for. And the big three money event we had yesterday was mainly catered to creators, artists, podcasters, and authors. Uh, so that's why we are super proud of this new update. Michael, it's certainly a fight for entertainment hours when it comes to, to listeners, viewers, watchers. Uh, can I just ask you, though, about the implications of TikTok again, though, because it feels as though you may have a shrinking uh, playing field if TikTok is excluded from the United States. You've got to wonder how far that stretches. Do you think TikTok will be taken out of the equation as a competitor soon? 
I would like to avoid commenting on TikTok itself because like we're focusing really on our business and our business was super strong, uh, as you just said, and uh, we have reached a big milestone of 500 million users across the globe. Europe is one of the big strongholds. We are coming from Europe, we actually founded in Sweden, so we are a European company. Um, and yeah, our business is really thriving. We had a very strong Q4, uh, well above our guidance and uh, reached 205 million subscribers also on the paying side. Uh, so we are super confident about our business and really focusing on, on our business of that side of the more like audio and, and lean back or back, background listening kind of experience. Michael, I'm going to lay my cards on the table. I am a fan of your product. I use your product. My, I, I pay for your product. And yet if I was an owner of your product, I wouldn't be happy because your company doesn't make profit, hasn't made profit for 17 years. So from my own point of view, I like using it. From your point of view, I don't know how you're going to get to profitability, sir. Can you enlighten me? Yeah, sure. I mean, we have a very solid gross margin of 25.3% that we uh, kind of outlined in our Q4 earnings. Uh, it's obviously a big market for growth, so we have to invest. We uh, expanded into more than 180 countries. We are, as you can see, continuously investing a lot in the product, uh, working a lot with AI. We also just uh, released an AI DJ that would serve music better to customers, uh, a new, very innovative AI-guided playlist and smart shuffle functions. So obviously, there is still a, a lot of investment going into the product. So it's it's like uh, we are seeing a big growth. The unit economics are fine. Uh, and that's why we are super confident about the long-term uh, kind of outlook of our business, actually. Um, you haven't really answered my question, Michael. Your margins are getting worse. Your operating margin in the fourth quarter is negative 7.3%. You lost for the year 231 uh, million um, in the latest figure, I actually don't know the currency, let's assume that's Krona. The fact is you're still losing money in a stunningly competitive environment as well. Uh, let me make the question very simple. Michael, when are you going to make money? Um, so we're not giving that uh, kind of forecast for the long run any longer. So we're not giving like the 23 guidance. So I can't tell you the full year economics looking forward. But I can definitely tell you that we are also focusing on the business and the health of our business. As you might have seen, we also done uh, a kind of uh, adjusting, adjustment of the workforce um, uh, some months ago or some, some weeks ago, actually. Uh, and we're also more like obviously conscious on, on cost uh, spendings. So we are, we, are, we are very confident that we're on the right track to uh, also profitability. Is it still going to be the case, it's Michael? In, it's more a marathon than a sprint, for sure. It's a very long marathon, um, I think we all acknowledge. But, it, I mean, is it going to be the same in 2023 that operating expenses will outpace revenue growth? We're still focusing on the growth and obviously keeping the profitability also in sight and focusing on that as well. But it's kind of this two-sided uh, focus that we, that we are uh, going for this year. Let me ask you a slightly different question then. I mean, you, you've cut 6% of the workforce here. You are cracking down on the cost side of the business. What is the potential for further ancillary revenue or indeed for raising the price of the product to your embedded users? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously, we're adjusting prices in markets. So we, we have adjusted prices in many markets already. And we're looking at that. Uh, it's always a, a case by case and market kind of decision, where's the market currently at? Where's the overall economic uh, situation? What are the licensing conditions? And then we adapt that. So that's definitely one part of the of the strategy to go forward with. Uh, and then obviously, we announced also a lot of new things like we announced, uh, announced the, the launch of the audiobooks. Uh, but also when you speak about ancillary revenues, we just announced yesterday that we have a much deeper integration of merch and concerts. So there's obviously also uh, a new way to play and also to 
drive new revenues for artists and, and for the company. Michael, a couple of questions around AI. As you mentioned, you've got this DJ run by an algorithm. Can you give us a sense as to whether consumers are willing to pay up for this extra service, how costly it is for you to run at this point, but also whether you have any concerns about the sort of music that the algorithm comes up with and whether there are any risks here when it comes to reputation for the business? Yeah, no, I mean, we've worked with kind of AI uh, functions and large language models for a very long time. So we have already a big, like very well-known playlist like the Discover Weekly or the Release Radar that many of the customers will know. And we know from the customer feedback that they appreciate that a lot. And those are generated very individually for each customer uh, by our large language models and the artificial intelligence that our systems are providing. So we're just now taking it to the next level of guiding it and surfacing it in a different way where we fought, where we felt that customers were actually also wanting some context, some like, why is the, uh, why is Spotify now proposing that to me? So we have like launched this AI DJ to give a bit more context, to give a bit more background on the music, much like a radio DJ would as well. But it's totally uh, like localized and, and individually programmed for you yourself. But on the risk side, we, we have a lot of experience with, uh, with working with our large language models and the AI, uh, and we feel it's, a, it's the best user experience you can get because it's totally individualized. And uh, yeah, once you, you've tried it, you will never want to go back. Uh, Michael, thank you very much indeed for that. Look, very much enjoyed our conversation. So thank you for taking all our questions. Michael Krauser, who is the EU General Manager at Spotify. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.